I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Seth, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing okay. Glad to hear it's going great. As good as it can in Advent slash Corona Tide. Exactly. This whole year has yeah. prepared me for Advent. It's just been like one giant Advent Lent season. Yeah, except I think for me, instead of anticipating the coming of Jesus, I'm anticipating the coming of a coronavirus vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, the year of the year of the Advent. That's true. What's What's oh. my question? I'm excited. Sorry, that wasn't to are you? That wasn't to push you. I'm just excited for the question. Well, I'm feeling a little pressured, but I guess I can go ahead and ask you, what would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to know the future but have a terrible memory or have an eidetic or photographic memory where you essentially remember everything that you encounter? This is, a, this is a good question. I think I would rather know the future. Yeah? Why is that? You could make a lot of money. <laughs> but, and it would also make a, a lot of your decisions a lot easier. But I think if I had an eidetic memory, I would just remember all of my mistakes and all like the times I've screwed up, and it would actually just be mostly depressing. Well, wouldn't you know your mistakes in the future, too? Like the ways, like either way, I feel like there are ways to be ashamed of ourselves, you know? (laughs) And I don't know. I think knowing the future would be hard because then it's like, well, to stuff that I see happening, does it still happen even if I try to avoid it? Like I'm just picturing, you remember the show That's So Raven? Yeah, yeah. Where she'd have these visions that just seemed completely outlandish and sometimes she tried to avoid them. But it always ended up happening anyway. Like, is that what would happen? Because if so, then knowing the future would make me feel really, like, powerless. Like, there's nothing I could ever do to change anything. But I already know what's going to happen. I, don't, I, was, I was assuming you could see the future, but then you could change it. Mm, okay. So you are, in fact, God. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was why I wanted in, to see in, the future. In, in, I was going to say, in that sense, then yeah, I'd go for them too. <laughs> I've been, th- I've been uh, watching through Big Bang Theory again. Well, I say again, I've mostly watched like sporadic reruns. I've never watched it all the way through. And a couple of notes. First off, a lot of it has not aged very well. <laughs> pretty, pretty homophobic and transphobic, especially. Uh, but also Sheldon Cooper is made for 2020. Like I feel yeah. like if Sheldon Cooper was alive right now, He's already a germaphobe who hates contact with other human beings. 
he is thriving right That's now. That's true. I mean, he's someone with an eidetic memory. Exactly. And I think because I'm concerned about how sad I would be about knowing the future, I think I'd rather have an eidetic memory. It would, it would serve you so well in academia, too. Like, right. <laughs> like, that is, like, one of the chief skills. Right. Especially if you were just a student. Like, yeah, exactly. You just looked looked at your readings and like I no, know this now. now. But if it made me like Sheldon Cooper, I don't know. He's also pretty annoying. Yes, I don't know. I think we need to. We need I to... think we need to move into the scripture. <laughs> okay, we can do that. All right, will you read it for us? I would love to. This is Luke, chapter one, verse forty-six to fifty-five. Mary said. My soul proclaims your greatness, O God, and my spirit rejoices in you, my Savior. For you have looked with favor upon your lowly servant, and from this day forward all generations will call me blessed. For you, the Almighty, have done great things for me, and holy is your name. Your mercy reaches from age to age for those who fear you. You have shown strength with your arm, you have scattered the proud in their conceit. You have disposed the mighty from their thrones and raised the lowly to high places. You have filled the hungry with good things. You have sent the rich away empty. You have come to the aid of Israel, your servant, mindful of your mercy, the promise you made to our ancestors, to Sarah and Abraham and their descendants forever. That was beautiful. And what made you choose this particular translation? Yes, well, this passage called the Magnificat or Mary's Song is one of my favorite passages as well. And I chose the inclusive Bible, which I've used a few times, to intentionally try to peel away some of the gendered imagery for God here and try to get to the core of what Mary's saying. I also, again, since this translation was put together to be used in a worship setting, and whenever we encounter a psalm or a song, this is a translation I at least like to look over uh, because it it fr- has worship in mind mm-hmm. in its translation. Mm-hmm. So as you encounter this text, which may be familiar to you and many people who are listening in today, what are some things or a thing that stood out to you the most? So I, I often think about this. This isn't particularly new to me. But if we want to ask the question if Mary knew then she this makes it pretty clear she definitely knew she sings a oh, she yes. sings a song about knowing what's going to happen <laughs> yeah i literally put in my notes let it be settled mary knew yeah. we don't need any more white dudes singing the question and mansplaining to her about whether she knew what was going to happen it's right there she laid it out and i i just think we need to move past Mary, did you know? Yes, agreed. It can be a song that is beautifully sung, but at its core, <laughs> I don't like the premise of the song. Same. Okay, with that settled, now that we have settled that definitively, once and for all, Perfect. I do not want to hear any, any more about that for the rest of this Advent slash Christmas season. Good luck. I know. (laughs) With all that settled, one of the lines that gets me is the very last one. I think what sticks out to me is always that the mighty have been deposed and that the 
the lowly are raised, but it's actually all in the context of God's promise to Sarah and Abraham. I think sometimes I, I forget that part. I'm like, I get, I like the kind of empire toppling stuff. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like, this is great. Let me yeah. focus on that. And then I forget that there's this little end part, right? Right. And, and I think to some extent we can talk about those things going hand in hand too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That God's promise to Sarah and Abraham was about descendants, was about a people that would call them their matriarch and patriarch. And in this time and setting, in the midst of the Roman Empire, that promise is threatened by the presence of empire. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. this reordering, this flipping, the feeding of the poor and the turning away of the rich, again, this, this leveling of the playing field has to do with that promise mm-hmm. with Abraham's and Sarah's children and descendants being able to continue to evidence God's faithfulness. And so I, I think you're, you're right to throw that back into that context. I, I, I too love the deposing the mighty from their thrones and raise the lowly to high places. Like that's, Oh, that's a great verse, but it's also, it's also a really interesting moment in the midst of what we would call the Christmas story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. tell me tell me some of your thoughts about how you've heard about Mary's role in the Christmas story. Like what, where this story comes up, where what we read comes up, and maybe some of the things that are commonly referenced when we think about the birth of Jesus. Sure. I think in my traditional Sunday school Christmas telling of the Christmas story, I'm not sure this, our passage ever comes up, especially kind of with it, with what I want to call it's like empire critical tone. That's not part of the story, right? But Mary just seems so passive in all the stories that I've heard that the angel kind of tells her that she's going to have, she's going to bear a child and then she accepts it. Joseph has some immediate pushback comes to accept it and then they move on like it they move on i mean literally and figuratively this section kind of counters some of the naivete that the basic sunday school christmas story that i've been told has like embedded in it it's so simple it doesn't kind of confront anyone right it's like so easy to to accept almost yeah i I think what we often see, whether it's portrayed in Christmas pageants or talked about in popular culture, the story, the Christmas story is this amalgamation of some interpretation of details from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And it's often this narrative that's pulled away from the context of the Gospels themselves, Mm -hmm. like the specific Gospels that they're coming up in. Chapter one of Luke is, I think, let me double check this here. Yeah, it's 80 verses long. <laughs> and you get some of the stuff that you mentioned, but a lot of what's happening, you know, we, we talked last in our last episode about John the Baptist in the beginning of Mark mm-hmm. and how it just launches right into the action. Luke gives some more backstory about John the Baptist and his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
and Elizabeth and Mary have some interactions in here. And even throughout the rest of the nativity, the birth stories in Luke chapters 1 and 2, there are some other songs that come up. There's a lot of these proclamations of prophecy that are intending to tie the birth of this child, as you so rightly pointed out, Seth, to the larger story of the people of Israel. And I think that's interesting from a couple of angles on what a gospel is. So one of my favorite things about the gospels is that they're hijacking a Roman media and genre to be about Jesus. And it's kind of subversive. A gospel in Greek, the euangelion, or the good news, as it's literally translated, these were often narratives that were put forward about the emperors of the Roman Empire and talking about why they deserved to be emperor and you know specific stories that revealed particular things about their character. And here comes a series of gospels that talk about a baby born in a manger in occupied territory to an oppressed people group and talk about how this this person this child of god but also this child of mary is the one who is actually lord overall and so the gospel structure is really subversive in that way it, in that contrasted with the stories of the emperors that came out in these gospels throughout the roman empire the gospels that still remain part of our new testament today they, they all have an intent and a purpose, not necessarily to be a biography as we'd understand a biography today, but to put together and knit together a picture and a story of Jesus for a particular community and for a particular purpose. And so Luke's, Luke is believed to be writing to a more Gentile audience in that, you know, writing beyond the Jewish faith, and even in the way that the early part of this book is structured, you see like a kind of a technical argument yeah, being knit yeah. together. <laughs> and these songs throughout the first couple of chapters around the story of Jesus are intended to not only set up the story of Jesus in Luke, it's also to set up the story of Jesus in Luke for that community it's being mm -hmm. written for as this continuation and invitation into the story of Israel and how this is the ultimate fulfillment of that, even though that audience might have been less familiar with that that mm -hmm. setting. So I think the connections that we've been talking about, the fact that some of this story is pulled away from our popular understandings, because we don't pay attention to the things that don't fit well into our nativity sets that we find on our mantles and on our end tables this time of year. But there's a real depth to what this part of the story is setting up for who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so central to the foundation of how he came into the world. And that's a characteristic of birth narratives at the time in these kind of gospel stories, whether they be about Jesus or about other people in the empire. The way that they're born is really significant. So I know, as, as I often do, that was a lot of information. <laughs> But was there anything in there that stood out to you as you're reconnecting back to this text? One thing I just wanted to highlight about every all that you just said <laughs> is that the Gospels as a genre are the only intentionally written stories about Jesus 
that are in our New Testament, right? Like as opposed to Paul's letters mm-hmm. that are that are like a medium of correspondence. Like the writers yeah. of the gospel are doing intentionally to kind of sketch this biography of Jesus. Uh, just to kind of keep that in mind. Which is, I think, exactly what you were saying. That they have this intentional audience and they're writing intentionally to them. Uh, so we should expect kind of maybe something different from them. The other thing that was so fascinating to me is you were talking about how this this really sets the stage for Jesus' ministry and what he comes to do. And I was thinking, I think it's Luke where Jesus unrolls, he unrolls the scroll from Isaiah, right? And he mm-hmm. says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. What He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is coming to me. And to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free. Something like that. I might have butchered that. That was that was actually pretty spot Was that on. good? Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's that's from Luke 4. Okay. That his reference and then the the callback to Isaiah. Yeah. Yes. Thinking about how this passage from Mary actually even sets the stage for what Jesus will say about himself later in Luke 4. Right. Mm. This idea of the mighty being toppled, that the lowly are lifted up. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and Seth, I think you're actually helping me transition to a conversation about what's the point. And and in this transition, I want to I want to highlight where this not this story, but where this passage falls that we read in the midst of Jesus's birth story. So Mary has the encounter with the angel a little earlier, tells tells her what's going down. She's going to give birth to a child after never having sex, not being married, putting her into this difficult situation. She, like many people who have been given a specific call from God in the Bible, offer que- offers <laughs> questions, she offers challenges, but ultimately she says, I'm the servant of God, let it be done to me as you say, yeah. and walks away. It is, when, it is when she encounters her relative, often taught as her cousin, Elizabeth, who we mentioned before is the mother of John the Baptist, it's when she encounters her that this song comes out. This song Mm. simply spills out from her. And there are actually some translations that render how both Elizabeth and Mary speak. So what Elizabeth says right before this song and then Mary's songs as rather than said or exclaimed, it's like they blurted it out. Mm. Like Mm. they couldn't contain the praise and the celebration and the songs that were coming forward. And in this moment... We have Elizabeth, who is elderly, and Mary, who is young, has never had sex, has never been married, and they're both becoming mothers together. And I just am curious to hear from you, Seth, what it says, in addition to the context that we've just mentioned about what the song itself is saying, what does it say about the story of Jesus that it is started and centralizes around two unlikely mothers Hmm. that they're so central to the story of jesus and by extension the story of john the baptist too i just want i want to hear from you what it what it says about jesus's story what it says about god i'm just curious to speak about that a little sure no that's a great question i think just historically women have have been marginalized in our readings of the text, right? And the the classic nativity stories that were told are just one example of the way that that women get pushed to, to the margins, right? 
it's like Mary yeah. becomes this like a barely a central figure in what she does is just passively accept what the angel has told her uh, but this seems to suggest to me that, that that's not true right that i mean she accepts it but it's anything but just complete pass- passivity right she she kind of even she talks to the angel engages it and then responds with such joy tells me something about how god thinks and views women um, in contrast to the way the mostly white male theologians and scholars have pushed women to the margins yeah i've been really appreciative i've mentioned her podcast on the show before but brandy miller hosts the podcast reclaiming our theology uh, and she is doing an advent series right now hmm. and hmm. is exclusively talking to women theologians and her first her first episode she exclusively talked to two women uh one of whom is identifies as queer both of whom were pregnant Mm -hmm. and uh she was like it doesn't it doesn't make sense for white men who have never had a baby have never (laughs) menstruated like none of this stuff to be talking about the meaning of carrying a child (laughs) during advent and and so I say all that and recognize the irony of us kind of doing some of that now, too. But I've just appreciated the way that Luke offers us an example here that centralizes the story of these women, just as Jesus so often centralizes the stories of those who are pushed to the margins throughout the, his life as depicted in the book of Luke. Mm-hmm. Because another characteristic of the Gospels is that every detail is knit together intentionally. The authors didn't just say, well, this happened, so I've got to throw it in here because, you know, Jesus happened to have this wedding that he went to where he turned, you know, that just happened. No, the authors are telling an intentional story. And the fact that in Luke especially, the part of the story that I think, the, the nativity story that gets emphasized more often, I think, that, you know, Joseph was trying to be respectable yeah. and... Divorce Mary <laughs> quietly. <laughs> like, yeah. what an honorable dude. What? That, Joseph, I don't even know if Joseph is mentioned in the first two chapters of Luke. He is He is not present in these interactions with the angel. I think the story from, that we often kind of tie into that amalgamation is from the Gospel of Matthew. And, oh, so he is mentioned because they're going to his hometown. That's why they're going to Bethlehem. Okay. It's because because of the census. Yeah. That's that's the only the only mention. But Mary is really the central figure of these first couple chapters. And to me, this story just centralizes and anchors in Christ's birth narrative, a key component not only of this story, but also about the reign and realm of God. Yeah. That God lifts up the lowly and brings down the proud and topples the mighty from their thrones and lifts up the humble and that that's so central to how Jesus operates and how we're supposed to operate moving forward too. Okay. So this is colloquial. So God tells all the white male biblical scholars to just sit this one out. Let's let's topple them from their thrones. Just shut up for a second. Let the women do the talking, right? Let's lift them up. 
whose voices have been historically marginalized. Totally. I think that that's a great, <laughs> great application of this, this idea. And also want to make sure that those, those power structures that lifted up those voices in the first place aren't also the structures that are leading towards these other voices too. Because oftentimes when roles of women are being amplified, they often still aren't inclusive of people of color, especially women of color, of indigenous folks, of folks who identify as gender or sexual minorities. Uh, There are so many different levels of injustice intersecting with one another. And I think for you and me, especially this Advent, hearing this story and hearing Mary's song and thinking about how can we step aside and amplify other some other voices? I think that's a really powerful and challenging thing to to encounter here, because I often look at those verses of like, yeah, depose those mighty people from their thrones. They're over <laughs> there, <laughs> yeah. forgetting that yeah. as you know, as the person that I am, it's probably more appropriate for me to think about. Oh man, this is this is going to be challenging for yeah. me. And I need to think about the power that I hold and the position that I have and how that fits or doesn't fit in my role in the reign and realm of God. I just keep thinking about how what the, what the church is historically like points to what the church will be eschatologically, like at the end, right? Mm. Just as women have been included at the very beginning people who have been historically excluded will be there and included at the very end. And related to that too, Seth, my prayer for this Advent season is that those who have a family experience that breaks the quote, nuclear family unquote mold, whether it be because of divorce, whether it be because their family is chosen, not their birth family Mm -hmm. anymore, whether it be because they are adopting children or are conceiving through other means besides besides sexual intercourse. Like, I hope that this story is affirming to the life that God offers in connection for mm-hmm. these two women who had children in less than typical ways. And I don't say that to diminish to diminish that experience, but simply to highlight that the life of Jesus, as depicted in the Gospel of Luke, started with a story of an unwed mother who had to face societal pressures even in her pregnancy. And I think that story of being further pushed to the outside because of the way your family is starting or is taking shape I think that story can resonate with a lot of folks. And I hope it does. I hope they see in this a story of a nurturing, loving God who brings the lowly into the folds. The folds of love and peace and welcome. I hope we don't have to wait till the very end to the eschaton for that to be the case. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Well, before we get to work, Seth, can I pray for us? That would be great. Great. Let's pray together. Mother and God, 
You have nurtured and raised your children throughout the world with incredible love and strength. Send us your spirit so we can nurture and care for your creation, human or otherwise, as well. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the Holy Child of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're talking about a passage from 2 Samuel. It's a section that's often uh, been called the Davidic Covenant. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs>